Welcome to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with David Axum, author of The Management Mythbuster. On behalf of the entire strategy-driven team, I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Strategy-Driven Podcast, an interview with David Axum, author of The Management Mythbuster. The Strategy-Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this special edition podcast, David Axum, president of the Sunex Group, shares with us his insights on the common errors made when executing time-honored strategic planning and business management practices and how to avoid these mistakes and subsequently improve management's effectiveness and the organization's bottom line. And so now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by David Axon, author of The Management Mythbuster, and president of the Sunex Group, a business advisory firm. David is the former head of corporate planning at Bank of America and was a co-founder of the Hackett Group. He is a sought-after speaker and writer on business strategy and management and is widely regarded as a thought leader in industry. David, welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you on the show. I loved your book, The Management Mythbuster. I was a little nervous, though, at the outset as a uh, management consultant. (laughs) Uh, So, um, And and I know we're going to talk about consultants and and how they should be managed (laughs) in a little bit. But I I Mm -hmm. loved your book, and I really appreciated the, the principles and practices that you laid out in there. I think our audience is in for a real treat today. Great. I hope so. Well, David, to start our conversation, throughout your book, you really did take on many of the time-honored and valued management philosophies and practices of today. In general, do you see the principles behind these practices as what needs to be changed, or is it really more a matter of how we're actually implementing them? That needs some help. Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, I think it's more about the how. Well, it is more about the how. Um, you know, the principle of planning out resource allocation over some future period, trying to forecast performance of your organization in the marketplace, uh, paying people 
based upon certain performance targets and the achievement of those targets. There's nothing wrong with those principles. What we've seen over the last four or five years, and it's really been brought to a head over the last four, four or five years, is the fact that the way we execute against those doesn't work in today's world. Mm-hmm. Many of those practices were institutionalized you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, primarily a manufacturing-centric economy, primarily yeah. domestically based. Now, clearly, we live in a very different world today. It's a service-centric economy very global, the speed with which an event in one part of the world ripples across the other parts of the world is unprecedented today. And many of our management practices simply cannot accommodate the speed and volatility with which we need to make decisions today. So while the principles remain sound and valid, what many organizations are struggling with is the actual activities that they pursue, the processes that they use to support those principles simply can't keep pace with today's world. And that's why you've had you know, company after company having to come out, admit that their forecasts are flawed. We have all of the issues going on around incentive compensation at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, we have very detailed budgets that are being abandoned virtually the day they've been created because you know, maybe Europe gets closed because of volcanic ash or terrorist bombs go off in Mumbai or the H1N1 virus shuts down Mexico or there's a massive oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. These events are really having a ripple effect around the world that is causing a lot of uncertainty out there. And managers are really saying, how do we need to readjust our thinking so that we can begin to execute with confidence in what is going to be an uncertain world for now and into the future? Absolutely. And David, one of the things I know Strategy Driven has long heralded as being a cornerstone piece of decision-making and driving an organization's focus is that of a well-constructed, well-communicated, and well-reinforced mission statement. Mm -hmm. You've, You've pointed out that a lot of organizations treat the creation of a mission statement today, though, as really an expensive pastime. What, so what do you see as the role of the mission statement today, and what are the qualities of a good mission statement? You know, that's a very good point. Unfortunately, partly, you know, you and I and some of our colleagues may be at fault here in the consulting profession, not you and I personally, I hasten to add. Mm-hmm. But mission statements have become a little bit convoluted. Yes. You know, there, there can be nuances around every word. And to me, a mission statement is very simple and straightforward. It has three real characteristics. It's aspirational. So it's describing a future state that you want to try and achieve, an objective, a mission uh, that you're seeking to try and accomplish. So it's aspirational. It should also be inspirational. You should be able to read a mission statement and think, that's a cool organization. I want to be part of that organization. But most importantly, it also needs to be practical. It needs to be something that people can internalize and say, how does what I am doing in this organization contribute to our ability to achieve this objective? You know, a couple of the great uh, mission statements that I've seen over the years, you know, one is the beginning of every Star Trek episode where they talk about man's five-year mission to explore the galaxy and what have you. That's very crisp, very clear, and it's exciting. It's aspirational. 
but it's also practical in terms of, you know, we'll take it one step at a time and explore. Perhaps the best one from the real world mm-hmm. was John F. Kennedy's ex- exhortation at the beginning of the 1960s that then resulted in Apollo 11 and man first landing on the moon. It's only about 28 words long, and I won't try and repeat the 28 words because I always get them in the wrong order, but it was basically about sending a man to the moon and returning him home safely before the decade is out. It really set both a very exciting, aspirational, and while it didn't seem practical to a lot of people, the fact is the mission was accomplished. So mission statements need to be aspirational, uh, they need to be practical, and they really need to set a perspective that allows people to buy into them. Absolutely. And one of the things or the stories that I like to tell with the John F. Kennedy mission statement for putting a man on the moon, which I, I too find to be one of the greatest examples ever, was the president was walking through NASA one day, and there was a man that was cleaning the floors, and he asked this individual what he was doing, and he responded very directly, Mr. President, I am helping put a man on the moon. Right. I mean, he clearly understood his role in the organization and his role in achieving the mission. Mm-hmm. I had a very similar real-world experience about 15 years ago. Uh, Federal Express, their mission statement has changed over time. Mm-hmm. But back 15 years ago, their primary mission statement that they communicated to their people and their customers was to deliver packages on time. I was walking through the accounts payable department of, uh, of Federal Express at the time, yes. and I asked one of the, Fed, uh, the accounts payable supervisors, how does what you're doing contribute to American Express being able to deliver packages on time? And she she answered very clearly and succinctly and very quickly. She said, look, you know, my job is to pay invoices. If I don't pay our supplier invoices on time and to terms, when we need them to help us out in a crisis, they're not going to be willing to do that. So maybe one of our planes needs maintenance repairs. Maybe one of our sorting facilities has one of its conveyor belts that's broken down. And we need a supplier to work with us. If I don't do my job right and do it correctly, I'm going to be hindering our organization's ability to deliver packages on time. And I thought that was a really good example of that word alignment that everyone Mm -hmm. uses. How do we get everyone on the same page? How do we get everyone aligned so they can describe how their particular contribution in the organization directly results in the company or the organization being able to achieve its mission? Absolutely. And and that is, to a large extent, what we talk about on strategy-driven and why we like Mm -hmm. We like good mission statements a lot. We don't like bad mission statements very much, but we like mission statements a lot. Yeah, unfortunately, there are too many mission statements that look like they were generated by a random word generation machine. Exactly. And now, kind of on those same lines, and and we've mentioned it already about consultants. And we know consultants are a fact of life for companies, and they're needed in, in many circumstances. But managers often fall into traps when they engage consultants, and they're not really getting the full value out of their consultants or other advisors that they're using. David, what conditions do you recommend that managers hire consultants? And then Mm -hmm. what should they do so that they ensure their consultants are continuing to add real value to the organization throughout the duration of their stay? Yeah. You know, there are really three things I would suggest that organizations think about. And I tell my clients when they're, you know, thinking about hiring me or somebody else, apply these criteria. 
the first thing is to be very clear what you're buying. Are you buying bodies or are you buying brains? You know, yeah. during the 1990s, during the ERP wave, there were a lot of, you know, junior SAP consultants who were being charged out at $1,000, $1,500, $2,000 a day to companies, where in effect all the client was buying was bodies. It was a headcount supplement. Maybe there was a headcount freeze internally, but it was easier to hire a consultant. So be very clear up front whether you're buying bodies, basically temporary labor, and pay appropriately for that, or you're hiring brains. Now, where consultants can really add value is, is where they provide specialist expertise that you cannot afford to source or retain on a permanent basis inside your own organization. It's very similar to expert legal advice or maybe expert scientific advice, where you do not have a continuing need in a full-time basis, but you need the best brains to be put towards a particular problem or a particular opportunity for a discrete period of time. And you set up the program in that way. So buying brains can be very valuable uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to buying bodies. So make sure you understand that question. The second thing is the best consultants are the ones that make themselves dispensable, not indispensable. Because yeah. what they are doing is they are transferring knowledge and skills to your own organization. You know, one of my key criteria when I work with a client on a project is I should not need to show up to the final presentation because the internal client team should have all the skills, knowledge, and information necessary to be able to execute that. So I'm effectively working myself out of a job. I'm looking to make myself dispensable to that organization rather than indispensable. And that's good for the consultant as well because if you do that successfully, guess what? The client has a tremendous feeling for you and you'll either get more work with that client or guess what? Your clients become your sales force and that's the best thing that you can look for is when your clients become your sales force because I'm sure you do like I do. About 70% of my work comes from referral. Absolutely. It's all about the relationship. And if you're just kind of leeching onto the client, they know it. And, yeah. you know, and we learn from our clients and we share that expertise, you know, confidentiality yeah. uh, being guarded at all times, of course, but that's part of the process. And many of our clients are former consultants, so they understand what's going on. Uh, but sometimes it's worth just reminding them, you know, we cannot be a crutch. A lot of these change processes, they're masochistic. You have to do them to yourself. You can bring in an outsider to help get the thing started, maybe provide tools and expertise, but ultimately, if you want to drive change in your organization, you have to do it to yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, David, in the Management Mythbuster, you talk about another trap that managers fall into, and that is by placing an over-reliance on forecasts when they do planning. What right. are, say, two or three key principles that you recommend managers follow when using forecasts to develop their plans? Well, the first thing I would always advocate is to match your desire for detail with your predictive ability. Yeah. You know, all too often we forecast or we budget in infinitesimal detail. You know, I've seen spreadsheets with thousands of line items and hundreds of columns, and we tend to mistake 
that detail equals accuracy. Well, that may be true when you're looking backwards and accounting for things that have already happened. But as soon as you turn your perspective and look towards the future, detail does not equal accuracy. So you cannot forecast you know, 18 months from now in the same level of detail as you can three months from now. So the first thing to do is to match your desire for detail with your predictive ability. The second thing is to communicate the level of confidence you have in each of the numbers in your forecast. And that could be as simple as color coding them. You know, numbers in red have a high degree of variability around them because we don't have a good understanding of what the future looks like. Maybe the relationship between drivers and results is uncertain at this present time. Mm -hmm. Maybe we then have an orange or an amber light that says, you know, the range of variability is much narrower here. So if you're using this information to make a decision, be careful because it could vary 5%, 10%, but you can have a reasonable degree of confidence. And then if you have a number that's maybe in green, maybe it's your rent because you've got a five-year lease on your building, so you know what your rent's going to be. Sure. So if you're doing something that's predicated on sourcing material or signing maintenance contracts for your facilities, you can pretty much take that number to the bank. The unfortunate situation for many organizations is the most uncertain number on their P&L account is the top line, which is revenue or sales. And we don't do a very good job of communicating that confidence level, and more importantly, how that confidence level declines over time. I see a lot of 12-month forecasts where every month is forecast in the same level of detail, and there's no indication that the December number is more or less accurate than the January number. And that really is not a very uh, useful tool. The third component that you can do to try and reinforce that is move towards more range-based forecasts. Yes. So you communicate that our sales for the next quarter are going to be between 100 and 120. So that's a relatively narrow range. Mm -hmm. But for the quarter after that, maybe it's 90 to 125 because there's a little bit more variability in our pipeline at that particular point in time. So you can use ranges to communicate confidence as well. So match your desire for detail with your predictive ability and then communicate your level of confidence in the forecast so that people don't believe that just because it's in the forecast, it must be right. They take the numbers with the, uh, an appropriate amount of caution and make decisions accordingly. As you were describing those three key principles, there's a saying that comes to mind that I've, I've often used with the work I've been engaged with, and that is people like to measure with a micrometer, mark with a crayon, and then cut with a chainsaw. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we believe that there's accuracy in that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, unfortunately for many of us who work in finance, we were trained as accountants. Well, the yeah. very word accounting means you're counting for things that have already happened. You're looking backwards. Mm -hmm. And when you train as an accountant, things add up, they balance, and they're right. But as soon as you begin to look towards the future, all of those assumptions fall apart. So you really need to start to think about how do we understand the level of certainty or uncertainty in what we're communicating, and how do we make sure that people that are using that information understand the level of certainty or uncertainty that exists. Yes. Now, David, on a kind of similar topic, talking about near-term and long-term, in your book, you address the principle of pay for performance. And what I have found organizations struggling with is how do they define long-term performance rewards in terms of payouts today? 
And they struggle because they have a hard time motivating their leaders to take prudent risks for things that would be potentially beneficial in the long term for the organization, but really have a short-term cost and therefore detract from the what are often really well-defined short-term mm-hmm. compensation awards. Do you have mm-hmm. any recommendations as to how organizations can better structure their compensation rewards so that they do motivate managers to take prudent long-term risks? Yeah, you know, it's a very complicated subject, compensation design. It's also a very emotive subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's some basic principles that I think need to be really built into this. All too often, compensation today is based upon hitting relatively short-term targets. And I count an annual target as being relatively short-term. And the problem is that target can be a negotiated target. If someone knows that that target is going to determine how much money goes in their back pocket at the end of the year, they're not really going to build a stretch plan. They're going to try and set the bar as low as possible. And the problem we experience today is there are really a couple of effects. Say, for example, you sat down at the beginning of the year and you agreed that your plan target was 10% growth and that your incentives were tied to that. You get to the end of the year and you grew 15%. So you're a superhero and you get a massive bonus. Unfortunately, what if all your competitors grew by 20%? Did you do such a good job or did you just negotiate a low-ball target and get lucky in the marketplace? Now, the reverse situation is much more likely. In the last few years, we've had companies that maybe had 10% targets. They get to the end of the year and they've only grown 2%. So the no bonuses are paid out but their competitors all shrank by 10%. So they've actually strengthened their relative position in the marketplace. So the first thing I think is you need to balance compensation uh, around absolute growth and then relative performance in the marketplace in which you're competing. So I'm increasingly seeing public company proxy statements include benchmark measurements as well as absolute measurements. Now in terms of the short and long term, you do see a balance of, you know, particularly from a sales incentive standpoint, quarterly rewards and then annual rewards. Mm-hmm. The senior management is usually annual, but increasingly we're now seeing three-year rolling averages appear. So you have to hit certain hurdles over a three-year rolling average period, and that could be as much as 50 to 60% of your total payout. So in that case, you don't get all the rewards unless you balance both the short-term and the long-term. The other component that then relates to that is some of those rewards are banked, and if performance declines in the succeeding period, you can lose that money. So there can be a clawback component. So those are some basic principles. The actual technical design, you know, we could be talking about that for the next 24 hours on this call and still would not come to resolution. But those basic principles of rewarding real performance and relative performance, so you Mm -hmm. outperform your competitors, and then creating a mechanism that ensures that people have to hit both the short, the medium-term, and the long-term goals in order to maximize their return, and that some of that return is at risk so you don't maximize performance just for the measurement period, and then the organization falls off a cliff as soon as those rewards have been paid out. Those are some basic principles that I think can really help in the discussion in the boardroom and at the compensation committee level about how do we get the right balance and the right mix. Oh, those are great. Those are really great. And now, David, I want to change gears just a little. 
there was an assertion in your book that, to be honest, I, I couldn't agree more with. And that is that there is no such thing anymore as an IT project. And I was really happy that you pointed that out. Would you describe for our listeners what the basis for that statement is? Yeah, you know, I have an IT background. I have a degree in computer science that's so old it's obsolete. In fact, it was called data processing in those days, so shows how long ago it was. But for really the first 30 years of IT and business from the mid-60s through the mid-90s, you could draw a fairly sharp line between the IT aspects of the business and the rest of the business. You know, the computers were in data centers, the printers were in little rooms, you know, green and white line paper came around on a trolley and was handed out to your desk. And then around about the early 1990s, we really began to see technology and process converge so that you cannot now separate the process benefits from the technology benefits. They're mm -hmm. so tightly integrated. The other key component is in the last 10 years, we've begun to see a lot of the technology application move away from basic transaction automation. We spend a lot of time in the 80s and the 90s automating accounts payable processes and order shipping billing processes, you know, the basic transactional guts of an organization. Now it's much more knowledge and decision making and planning processes where technology is being applied. And frankly, the value of that technology is how the information that the technology generates is then used. So you cannot separate the human component from the technical component. You know, if you have the world's greatest performance measurement system in your company, but managers continue to make dumb decisions, it doesn't matter how cool the technology is, how cost effective that technology is. So what we've really seen is a convergence of process and technology Mm -hmm. And the real issue now is how effective are people at using that technology. That's why so much emphasis is being placed on user interface design, uh, creating interfaces that are adaptable to people's different learning styles and working styles. And frankly, it also explains a lot of the success of a company like an Apple. That yes, yes, their products are really cool. But what really distinguishes them is the intuitive user interfaces that they've created on things like the iPad, the iPhone, iTunes. You know, you don't need to be technologically sophisticated to use these products. And that's a massive breakthrough in terms of commoditizing and democratizing technology. So you no longer need a degree in computer science to use this stuff. Absolutely. And it provides you, the technology provides you with that information that you need to make sound decisions. And, and it facilitates decision making. Well, it was interesting. I was having a conversation with the CEO about two years ago. I was describing this and we spent an hour talking around this subject because he was frustrated. And he, he mentioned at the very end of it, he said, David, if I take everything you've just said, and I implement all this, my technology will work, I'll have great information, it will be timely. The only excuse I will have for making a bad decision is my own stupidity. And he said, what you're really telling me is if all of my technology works perfectly, you will be isolating my own stupidity as the only excuse for making bad decisions. And I thought he summed it up pretty nicely. Now, I yes. wouldn't suggest, suggest every CIO walks into the CEO's office and said, my mission in life is to isolate your stupidity. Uh, but it's perhaps a useful thing to keep in the back of your mind in terms of determining whether you're actually getting value from your investments. Absolutely. And now, for my last question... In your book, you also talk about while 
accounting and finance are very core and very important to the operations of an organization, that they rarely provide management with a useful view of their information. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what should be done to enhance the value of financial information such that it does create a very real value-adding decision-making information or tool to executives and managers? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we have to do the accounting. You know, you end up going to jail if we don't do that right. And part of the legacy here is back in the 70s and 80s when technology first impacted the back office, the general ledger was the first thing that got automated. So that sort of became the de facto data warehouse or information warehouse for the organization and really institutionalized an accounting view of the world. But unfortunately, the way accountants view a business is not necessarily the way people in a business view it. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Let's take travel spending, which is a big dollar amount for many, many organizations. The way the accountants would break that down would be have a line item for travel, and then they would break it down between airfare, hotel, meals, you know, basically the categories you would fill in on your expense report. Yeah. Now, that's interesting information, but how useful is it? Well, it's useful to the people in the travel office who are negotiating your discounts with the car rental companies and the hotels. But it's not particularly useful to a manager who's trying to control their travel spending. You know, if the airfare goes up or down a little bit, what's his first question? Well, the first question is why? So let me give you a quick example of how I would suggest you report your travel. You have the line item for travel. And then underneath that, you have the reason the travel was being incurred. How much of it was prospecting for new business, so visiting prospects out in the marketplace? How much was trying to solicit increased business from your existing customers? How much of it was actually fixing problems, going and visiting a customer because there'd been a product quality issue or a shipping problem or a billing problem, mm -hmm. and the salespeople then had to go out and smooth over the troubled waters so that you could retain the business? So beginning to understand how much of your travel was good, so it was driving future revenue, how much of it was bad, which was fixing other people's problems, is much more useful for someone that's trying to manage their travel expense than knowing the, the granularity of how much was spent on continental airlines versus American airlines. So the simple way to put that is look at every management report, and it will give you a what. What were our sales? What were our cost of goods sold? What were our travel expenses? What was our payroll? But the next level down should be the why. Why are our sales like that? How much of it is new products versus existing products? Cost of goods sold. How much of it is labor versus how much of it is materials? So I can really understand what's going on in that particular part of my business. So I really want the information to be reported around why does the number look the way it does? because that shortens the mean time to make a decision because it allows people to identify opportunities and threats much more quickly and then be able to make decisions based upon that. And I always tell folks if your reports and your performance measures aren't actionable or aren't driving you to some action, they're really serving no benefit. They're just spewing numbers into the air. Exactly right. And part of our job today is there's so much data we have these days. We can measure absolutely everything that we really have to do a much better job of being selective. So things like trend-based, exception reporting, 
those types of things, event-based reporting, is increasingly important rather than the old-fashioned approach of printing out every number that spews out of our system, sticking it into a ring binder and shipping it off to you know, 73 different managers around the company in the hope that they'll uh, squirrel their way through that and find the two or three numbers that are really important to material this month. Yes. And uh, I quote Albert Einstein. He once said that not everything that can be counted counts. Right. And not everything that counts can be counted. And we right. get that in this era where we have machines that can spew numbers and collect data on just about everything. Well, there's a related quote to that that I use, and mm-hmm. whether I claim authorship or not, I don't know. We used to say you can't manage what you can't measure. Yeah. Well, partly today is we can't manage what we can measure because there's so much. Absolutely. So we really need to decide what's important. Yes. Couldn't agree more. Well, David, before we close, you have a website, and it's www.davidaxon.com, that provides mm-hmm. additional resources on strategic planning and business management. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your website and the resources our listeners can find there? Sure. Yeah, the first thing you can do there is take a quick diagnostic to see if your management performance process within your organization is up to snuff. It's Mm -hmm. a 15-question diagnostic tool that you can download or you can complete online. The other thing that I would suggest people look at is to go to the uh, the intelligence section of my website. There's a whole bunch of white papers up there on many of the subjects that we've discussed today uh, that are free for people to download. So come in and explore the site. Send me a message. I'm usually pretty good at answering the questions. And obviously, there are also links there for you to go and buy my books. I've thoroughly enjoyed the white papers and materials on your website. We're going to put a link in the article that accompanies our podcast today so that our listeners can just, with one simple click, go right straight to your website and get all the value that you offer there as well. Great. Great. Well, David, I want to thank you not only for your time, but for sharing the phenomenal insights that you have on the several core business planning and business management principles that we've covered today. But I also think it's important to mention to our listeners that we have really just barely scratched the surface of the invaluable information contained within your book, The Management Mythbuster. So I hope that they'll pick up a copy of the book for themselves. And more importantly, I hope that after they read it, that they'll apply the principles and practices you describe in the book, because I know it'll help them become more effective themselves and their organizations to be more profitable. So thank you again for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank David Axon for being with us today and sharing his insights on strategic planning and business management. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show. Please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about David Axum and the Management Mythbuster at www.davidaxum.com. Until next time, so long.